Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. So last week, we talked about the Southside Slayer, and the Southside Slayer was a serial killer who preyed upon poor black women in central L.A. But this week, we are traveling to my neck of the woods, to the state of Indiana, to explore the case of Herb Baumeister who also found another group of marginalized people to prey upon for a decade. So grab your advice of choice. I will be knitting and buckle up because this case is a wild ride. My name is Sophia Talley and welcome to True Crime and Knit. So today we actually have Christy Glass Knits in the building with us. Hi, Christy. Hey, I'm so happy to be here. I love true crime and I love knitting. So it's a good combo. Oh my goodness. That to me just like speaks volumes because all I do while I knit is listen to true crime podcasts. Are you the same way? I tend to be silent with my thoughts, maybe audiobook and maybe a show, but I love Dateline. Like if I'm choosing a show. And I've been known to sort of binge podcast true crime in the past, like more when I'm exercising. That sounds really invigorating. I think that would make me run faster on the treadmill. Well, I think that when I'm knitting, I have to concentrate a little bit more. And with true crime, I don't want to miss a detail. Oh, I see. That's very true. See, with me, like I have ADD, so I have like one part of my brain could be really focused on the knitting and the other part can be really focused on the story. There you go. So it's like, for me, it like, I have to have something to listen to, whether it's true crime or even a crime novel. So I've been all about Agatha Christie lately. I love Agatha Christie. So let's get into this. I look at court documents and I only use literature that is told by reputable uh, journalists. And so when gathering information, I really make sure that it's all accurate. That way I know that I'm reporting the exact details to you. But with this particular case, the hard facts are blurry. And of course, I'll let you know when I mention anything that is speculation. But I want you to keep this in mind because this is clearly a side effect of the victims being members of the LGBTQ plus community. And I just can't help but wonder if the victims were different would we still be talking about this? And would we have more concrete information? I now research true crime cases as part of my job. And I have pretty much read it all. Like I've seen a lot. I've read a lot during this research. But this case will forever haunt me because most of these deaths could have been preventable. And we could even have more answers if the police and local government took 
these disappearances seriously. So that's just something I just wanted to like say before I get started. And of course, I'll let y'all know like if there's something, look, I'm not sure or I'll state the source and be like, this is as told by. It's all so hazy. Well, it's good to set the tone so you know like how to listen to the story. Yeah, it's just I usually these things are well documented, but you'll see why in this case. It's just bananas. Her Baumeister was born on April 7th, 1947 to a wealthy family in Indianapolis, Indiana, my state as of now. His parents were Herbert and Elizabeth Baumeister, and he had four other siblings. And he was the oldest, with Herb Sr. being a well-known anesthesiologist and his mother, Elizabeth, staying at home. Herb had a really stable, comfortable, normal childhood. And everyone who knew him thought that he was just the normal child. However, his behavior took a sharp turn during his teenage years when he started to exhibit new destructive habits. And, you know, it's normal for teens to start rebelling. I was a wild one in my teen years, but Herb took it to another level. He reportedly urinated on a teacher's desk and left a dead bird on another's teacher's desk. That does not sound like rebellion. That sounds like something else. So it escalated really quickly from him being a normal child to almost a switch being turned. But at the time, a lot of people thought, oh, he's a teenager. And this is, it's a phase. It's a phase. Yeah, it's, mm -mm. and according to Medium, as a teenager, he began to explore his sexuality, but, which is normal. But he started to do this in destructive ways by asking his male classmates if he can taste their urine. And he did that just for their reaction. But he was very vocal about his feelings and his sexuality but in a way that made his other classmates feel obviously uncomfortable. And his father also noticed that Herb liked to squeeze dead animals and he suspected that his son received sexual gratification from handling and interacting with dead things. Luckily, this was the 60s, so his father was concerned and actually took him to be psychologically evaluated. And here he was officially diagnosed with schizophrenia. Unfortunately, after the diagnosis, Herb was never taken for further treatment and there's not much said on this. But this is the part where it's speculation. In the 1960s, schizophrenia was often treated with electric shock therapy and lifelong institution. So that means if you were diagnosed with schizophrenia, you have to go through a lifelong treatment. And it's just, you wouldn't be able to live a normal life. Like today, if you're diagnosed with schizophrenia, most likely you can just take medication, therapy, and, you know, your, your life will go on. But in the 1960s, it just... The treatment just wasn't advanced enough. And so that can be a reason. And I do wonder, uh, though, if it weren't for the social stigma of mental illness, if maybe Herb's parents would have continued treating him and maybe wouldn't be discussing this case today if he were to get the proper treatment. Yeah, it sounds like he was diagnosed and then they just sort of went along their merry way. Yeah, they just dropped it. And I just cannot even imagine. So that's why I had to think about, okay, what is the historical background to this? Because it just doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't make any sense. And so his troublesome behavior continued into his early adulthood. And in 1965, he attempted to go to Indiana State University, but he withdrew from classes after one semester. 
And in 1967, he tried to go to school again. It's unclear whether or not he went to IU, but we do know he went to Butler University. And I want to point that out because I'm from Indiana and Butler University comes up all the time in these cases. And Jim Jones actually got his start there. What? That's a whole, that's a whole series. The Butler University criminals. I know. Like, I swear every case I run into, I see Butler University and it's never a small one. It's like, ooh, that's not a good alumni to put on your welcome brochure. <laughs> but we do know that he went to Butler, but he dropped out. And in 1971, he married Julie Sater and he and Julie stayed married for 25 years. Though they were married for a very long time, it just wasn't easy. And Julie would later report that in that whole 25 years, they've only been sexually intimate six times. Well, before you talk to me about that, before you talk about that, I have to say, they also have really good luck if they were only intimate six times and have three children. I mean, those odds, wow. And even during this first year, their marriage was actually tested because Herb's father had to admit him into a mental institution for two months. And we don't know exactly what happened or why, but he was there for a whole two months. And she stayed by him because from what I can understand, it sounded like she understood that he had an illness and it wasn't his fault, which is really big for the 70s. Despite his mental health issues, they went on to have three children. And everyone who interacted with Herb said that he was an attentive and loving father to his three children. Like he, he really did well in the domestic role, but however, his professional life was less than stellar. Okay. Tell about his professional life. His employers thought he was a wonderful worker. His employers were impressed with his work ethic, but as we know from his past, he just had some social things going on. He had a difficult time keeping a steady job due to his behavior. And he would have angry outbursts, and which was probably a side effect of his mental illness. And I just want to share this clip with you. This is a clip of Herb being interviewed by Wish TV. It's just fascinating to see him and how he's made the news during this really weird thing. The Indiana Department of Transportation maintains over 11,000 miles of roadway, and we paint those miles of roadway each year, and this is just an isolated incident that happened. The drive-by striping, <laughs> you know, whatever. Herb Baumeister of Carmel saw it all. I said to my son, they're gonna hit that raccoon with a spray gun, and sure enough, they just striped right over its face and neck. You know, didn't even move it, you know, no effort to, you know, get it out of the way. So I happened to have a Polaroid with me, so I took a shot of the thing. A raccoon, which met its demise on the yellow line, became one with the paint. The raccoon has since been removed. This is all that's left. This was just, you know, uh, the painter should have had a chalk line drawn around his career by state officials. There was no excuse for that. I mean, the poor thing deserved a better fate than that. What a shame. It would have taken just a second to kick that thing or move it somehow out of the way. It deserved a better fate than that. On the north side, Rick Dawson, Wish TV, News 8. Yes, yeah, so what I just saw, just to recap for those who couldn't see it, he just seemed like a really normal guy. I mean, he had a bad haircut, 
but he seemed pretty, pretty nice. And also that he seemed to be really concerned about the animals. So I was surprised because you had just told me he had this history of hurting animals or kind of getting pleasure out of that. And then he was criticizing the people who hurt the animals. So it's almost like he has this double life. Yeah, it's like he knows exactly what to say. And I find it really creepy that he was taking photos of it, like a photo shoot. That was creepy. Like, I also feel like it shouldn't have been a story. I mean, obviously, it was a mistake. And it, as someone who has lived, and you probably live rural too, in a rural area, there roadkill is a thing. There is so much roadkill. And it is tragic for the animal, but it's not on purpose. People don't get in the car in the morning and go, how many animals can I kill today? That's not what happens. It's almost as if he didn't understand the correct way to respond to the situation. So apparently it had to be the slowest news day because I don't know how that made it onto the news. But I'm happy it did because now we know kind of what type of person he was. So... I just wanted to show you that so you can get a feel to why he had a hard time keeping these jobs. So his personality, did you notice anything about his personality just being off? Yes. Yes. It was clearly an accident. And obviously, if you can picture, I mean, you sort of got a feel for, I mean, I feel like it's a giant truck on a highway doing a job and you cannot swerve from an unfortunate roadkill. You can't swerve from that. So I'm sure that that was not the first time that had happened. I just was speechless. That's the only thing I can say. I was very speechless, but it made the whole story really click for me once I saw that clip. Because it's just like, oh, okay. Because now I really see he makes you uncomfortable. And I wasn't even there and I felt uncomfortable. And that seems to be his whole vibe. He worked for the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. It's known as the BMV here in Indiana, but you might know it as the DMV. So his job was short-lived after an incident when, once again, he urinated on his boss's desk before he urinated on his teacher's desk. This time, it was his boss's desk. And there was another incident where he insisted on leaving a slice of cake in a filing cabinet. And he would watch how it would deteriorate and decay over time. I mean, when you say that thing about the cake, like you can picture that little smile he had in that clip, just kind of like, I think he liked being on camera too. He liked the attention. Like that was a really in-depth interview for the incident and he really enjoyed it. He really basked in his five minutes of fame there. With... Anyway, <laughs> so he was fired from the BMV and... So he decided to find another job. He had a hard time finding another office job, but he did work for a short period of time in a thrift store. And Herb really liked working there, and he decided to take his career in a completely different direction. And he opened up a local chain of thrift stores called Save-A-Lot. Not to be confused with Velot's grocery store. This is another Thing. This was only in Indianapolis, and he had two locations. And he did really well. It did so well that he bought a 18-acre property with an 11,000-square-foot Tudor-style mansion on it, complete with an indoor swimming pool. What? Wow. Okay. And 
He bought this in Westfield, Indiana. I believe it went for a million dollars. I had a hard time finding the true facts from that time period because a lot of it was clipping through old newspapers that have been scanned into the internet, not even like retyped. So I think it sold for about a million dollars. And they also had a lake house. And Julie would stay at the lake house almost every weekend and she'll take the children often. And so this would often leave Herb alone to handle his business because he couldn't take as much time off because as you can see, his business was successful. I'm from this area. I'm about 10 minutes away from Westfield and it's still exclusive. I see these properties a lot and they are mega mansions. They look like a dream. So you can only imagine how well his business was doing at the time. And, you know, he was still acting weird at work. His employees didn't particularly like him. They all said that Herb made them feel uncomfortable, but there wasn't much that they can do because that was their employer. And they just tried to write it off that he was a little bit weird. But despite his personality being odd, the whole community knew Herb and respected him as a local business owner. Yeah, because he's a white guy. Yes, exactly. And however... In the fall of 1994, something happened at this dream estate. Herb's 13-year-old son found a skull on their property, and he showed it to his mother, Julie. And Julie was alarmed, and she asked him, hey, where did you find this? And he led her to a wooded area where the two found even more skeletal human remains. So Julie decides to ask her husband, Herb, about these bones. And he said that it was just his father's skeleton. His father, we mentioned, was a well-known anesthesiologist. And Herb said that his father used that skeleton while he was in school. And it was kind of like a family keepsake. And so that's why he had it. But he didn't really explain how it ended up on the property. Did she buy that? She took it at face value. At first, I was like, huh? Like, if my husband were to tell me that, I wouldn't believe him. But... Herb is a strange guy. That's what everyone thought him as, just weird Herb almost. So maybe she's just used to this behavior of storing things in weird places. I, I think I would have called the police and assumed it was something that happened before I moved onto the property. That story he told, I guess, depending on your relationship, like maybe you would believe it, but... I would assume I would go to my spouse and together we would call the police, you know? My husband, we have this agreement that we will snitch on each other in this type of situation. We're like, I'm sorry, I will tell on you. You're like, we want to be... We want to be interviewed separately. Yes. I'll be like, look, I'll, I'll put money on your commissary. You know what I mean? I'll make sure you got stuff, but I am not covering for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh my gosh. You're so funny. You're like spousal privilege. No, no. Okay. So what happened next? So after this, they just continued living like normal. But unfortunately, in Indianapolis, things were taking a fatal turn. So we're going to have intermission for a second, and we are going to chit-chat, you and me. Today on the show, as you can see, we have Christy Glass. And Christy runs her YouTube channel called Christy Class Knits. 
where she is most known for her series. Tell me about your Rhinebeck sweater. And this is where you go to Rhinebeck, which is a fiber festival in New York, in case you are unaware. And it is literally huge in the knitting world. Like everybody wants to go to Rhinebeck. And Christy walks around with a big microphone and usually a cute pink sweater. And she will ask people to tell her about their knits. So, you know, that's how I found you. That's really how I found you like many years ago. And I just thought it was phenomenal, creative. I'm just, it really helped bring the community together because it got everyone talking and wanting to know more about each other's knits. And so I'm just honored to have you as my first guest. So thank you for being my guinea pig. Thank you for having me. And thank you for your praise of the video. It's one of my favorites that I do each year. It makes me extremely happy. And in fact, I wanted to go to Rhinebeck a couple of years ago before the Great Panini, but I was too pregnant and my doctor said I was going to go into early labor and I was devastated. So <laughs> I couldn't go. I wanted to see you there, but yeah. Bummer. It will always be there and hopefully you won't be pregnant next time. I'm not. <laughs> I'm good. So anyway, I just need to know what is your main knitting inspiration? Because you knit really vibrant pieces, but you're able to style them in a way that's accessible. So where do you get that inspiration from? Thank you for noticing. I, I think that the styling aspect comes from years working on set. So I've been on set either in front of the camera or behind the camera, modeling, acting, or acting as a child wrangler. And even though a child wrangler isn't a stylist, I work very closely with stylists. And then I, my eye has been trained over the years, you know, by looking at images and reviewing images all day long on set, because that's my job is to make sure the child is looking right, you know, for what they want. So I, I feel like my styling has really been influenced from actually being on fashion sets in New York City for, you know, 16 years. As far as the color goes, I just can't help it. I like colors. And so the opposite influence is true because also being a New Yorker for so long, black is New Yorker's favorite color. I think part of it is because, you know, in the summer you get home and your feet are black if you were wearing shoes because it's all soot. <laughs> And, and it's professional looking and it's edgy and it's, you know, fashion. And I enjoyed the color black for clothes. Also, I have, you know, a small section of my closet with my black pieces. But I just, I really associate it with funerals, to be honest. And I, and I really don't enjoy funerals. And I just can't help myself. I am always drawn to colors. And I particularly enjoy the color pink but it's like a specific pink it's like an orchidy pink and so when I'm seeing a project I'm always sort of putting this filter on it of what I want to see and so I'm drawn most often to sort of a green family and like a pink purple family and I just guess it's in my core it's just who I am I can't help it I grew up in the 80s everything was neon everything was prints and you know that may be part of the inspiration and influence too I love all your bright colors, particularly the sweater that you're wearing. Can you tell me about that? Is that knit collage? Well, there is a little knit collage in here, but actually what's cool about this sweater is this is crochet. 
And I find myself, I collect yarn and I will collect like one skein of something, which is fine, except if you're a sweater knitter, it's not fine because you only have the one skein. So I found myself with a collection of really special skeins and a lot of them are hand spun. So this is Alex Creates. He has this glorious sort of blue spun into this wool. I have some Nicolage on here, and I won't be able to name all of them. Some of this I got, I think, in Edinburgh Yarn Festival. And, and then this one farmer, Carol, she gave me these locks that was spun into wool. Anyway, I just wanted the perfect pattern to sort of incorporate them all. And I found this pattern by Alexi of Two of Wands called the Sherpa Coat. And she used some natural color fibers, like gray, brown, natural, like natural cream. So she made this awesome coat and I thought, I think all of my bright hand spun would look really cool in it. And so I did that and I love it. This is a cold, drizzly, rainy day today and it's going to cut that, you know, climate and I am a big fan of it. Love the texture. It's literally stunning and the texture with the crochet really helps. Like it just adds something to it. And what's fun, too, is it has a combination of bobbles and these, like, I don't know what we call these, like, uh, loops, like little loops. So it creates different textures. Yeah, it's like a loop stitch. Yeah, I don't know what they're called. It's beautiful. It's stunning. You just mentioned this, but you have a past on the stage and in acting in New York City. And I was just like... I never realized. So I need to know more information about your acting. Just give me anything. Like, what, were you in New York? Just anything. I'll take it. Okay. Okay. Well, you've all seen me on TV. You just have. So I've been in lots of national commercials. And I seem to always get cast in feminine products. That's kind of my specialty. And actually, the last commercial I came close to booking and didn't book was for Viagra. So that was sort of staying with the theme. But you've seen me, you've 100% seen me in a Nuvaring commercial and probably a Playtex Beyond commercial and maybe, and maybe Moderma Stretch Mark Cream. And then you've seen me in magazines. So like I've been on the cover of Parents Magazine. In fact, if you've seen the movie Juno, when Jennifer Garner, that's who's in it, right? Jennifer Garner, the mom role. She puts the magazines on the table because someone's coming over. I think Juno's coming over. And the ma the magazine she spreads out, you'll see me on the cover with my baby in, on the parents' magazine in that film. <laughs> Isn't that funny? And you've also seen me in a Gerber commercial because of some stock photo that I did, and they always put it up. So those are where most of the viewers have seen me. But beyond that, I've been in lots of print ads and, and I did some stage work for a while. I was able to hold on to that for about, from like age 18 to about 23. And then that kind of dissipated with motherhood. It's very hard for me. It was very hard for me to maintain the Broadway, like audition and rehearsal and performance schedule. So it was easier for me to transition to on camera. From what I understand, I was never on stage, but my aunt was on Broadway, my great aunt. And she loves to talk about it. She's like 80 now and she loves it. But from what I can understand, like you're working all day because you have matinee 
and then you have another show and it's just even if you're an extra like you have to be there ready to go on stage at any moment so i can only imagine how stressful that would be with kids because kids as we know as mothers don't have a schedule yes it's a lot i was able to do the show when i was pregnant and i actually worked during the day and did the show at night for a while which was heavy but it's you know, you have to be really physically fit. I think for me, the biggest tax was my voice. So I have, um, I would say I have a weak instrument in the, not, not the singing. I feel like I'm a strong singer, but the, um, the health of my actual vocal cords is more weak. And so I have to maintain that with silence and I cannot be a silent mom. I use my voice all day long and I sing to them and I yell at them. And so it's just not a great match when you need to have cords of steel eight shows a week. So that was definitely part of it and other factors as well. But I've had a really fun, unexpected career, lots of adventures. And I sort of took it in my own hands by starting my YouTube channel because now I'm my own boss and I get to do all the creative things I want to do. And I'm so happy you started because now we all know you and you brighten everyone's day whenever you go on YouTube and with your bright colors and your fashion sense. So thank you uh, for doing that and sharing. So let's get back to Herb. So beginning in the 90s, regulars at local gay bars in the Indianapolis area began to realize that something was amiss. Their friends were going missing. From 1993 to 1994, at least 10 men from the Indianapolis gay community were missing. And it's sadly in Indiana, um, they had a grossly ineffective law with dealing with missing person cases it is confusing and odd. So I'm going to read a quote directly from a private investigator, Virgil Vandegrift, that worked on this case because I've never heard of this law and now it's no longer a law. But he says the way it works here in Indianapolis is that persons are not classified as missing until they are gone for 24 hours. The case then goes to a district detective and if they don't find them in 30 days, it travels to missing persons for them to investigate. So now to the general public, this seems like a lot of red tape and highly absurd. Parents don't want to wait to find out what happened to their kid. And wives don't want to wait to see what happened to their husband. So they come to me. And that's an end quote from him. So just to summarize that, they need to wait 30, 30 days, three zero for it to go to Missing Persons Bureau. That is so strange. Yeah, and there's going to be an investigator on it. But remember, this is not an investigator that deals with missing persons. Yeah, it's just like, it's not a specialist is what you mean. No, yeah. So in this case, a lot of the times, like they, they just, the way they approached it wouldn't be the same way that you would approach a missing persons case. And that's really big because in missing persons you know like you that's your specialty like you know what to do so I don't know why they waited 30 days and so in this case this is exactly what happened to the loved ones of these missing men they went to Vandegrift who was a private investigator in the area and he actually became the number one contact for these families and friends 
uh, mother of Alan Broussard, a 28-year-old man who went missing in June 1994, was first to go to Vandegrift with reports of her son being missing. And while investigating into Broussard's disappearance, he stumbled upon an article in a gay lifestyle magazine. And it detailed the disappearance of Jeff Jones in 1993. So that was a year before Alan Broussard went missing. And so did he notice like parallels? So at first he suspected that these two disappearances could have been circumstantial because it's only two men and there was no evidence of foul play. There was no body and both of these two men were known to drift and they were already seen to live on the outskirts of society. The evidence seemed to point towards the men disappearing on their own accord and by evidence he really means the fact that they were just gone you know there wasn't signs of a struggle or anything so still Vandegrift continued to investigate because he was being hired by um, the family and so he was like okay I'm going to keep digging into this and he decided to do what the cops didn't do and work with the gay community and so he would help post missing posters of these two men and I try to get the word out to see if anyone have seen them or to just let people know, hey, two members of your community have gone missing and it may be foul play. Later in that summer, the mother of Roger Goodlett visited him. She came to Vandegrift crying because her 34-year-old son had not returned from a night out in Indianapolis. He was last seen at a gay bar. And friends who saw him, saw him get into a blue car with Ohio plates that night. And that was the last sighting of Roger Goodlett. Goodlett's story was such a mirror image of the other two men that Vandergriff finally began to suspect foul play as a viable option or a reason for his disappearances. So in walks Tony Harris and... Tony Harris went to the police and had a really interesting story to tell about his encounter with this man. So in 1994, Harris went to the 501 Club, which is a popular gay bar in Indianapolis, when a suspicious man caught his eye. There was this odd, lanky man reading a missing poster of his friend Roger Goodlett, who was one of the missing men. And... Later, Harris will be quoted by saying, I just had a feeling that, by the way, he was captivated by that poster, that he was the man who killed my friend, Roger. Oh, my gosh. He had an instinct about it. He said there was something in his eyes. So he decides to talk to this man. And he recognized him, this strange, lanky man, as someone who he's seen before on the gay scene, but he didn't know his name. And so the man introduced himself as Brian Smart. And he would evade any questions that that Tony had about the missing Roger Goodlett. He just wouldn't want to talk about it. Instead, he actually invited Tony to his home for a nightcap and a swim in his pool. And Tony said yes. It almost seems as if he was literally just literally dying to know what happened to his friend. And he was prepared to find out no matter what he was ready to take the risk of going home with this man and so harris gets into the car and it's a gray buick with ohio plates this is the second vehicle we've seen 
with Ohio plates in this story because Roger Goodlett was last seen in a blue car with Ohio plates. Which could have been dark blue and could have been the same car. Yes. Yes, because we only have eyewitness testimony, no photos, nothing. And so they drive north of Indianapolis and they pull into a property that Tony could only see a big sign that says something Farms, So he couldn't read what was in front of the farms, but it looked like a huge, rich estate. Brian leads him into a indoor swimming pool. So the swimming pool was gorgeous, but it was just filled with clutter. It was very odd. There were mannequins all over the area like there was mannequins lounging by the pool as if they were people and they were all posed in weird ways and so tony's like what's with all the mannequins and brian says i get lonely and they give me company i can't believe tony made it out i'm so glad tony made it out i know i so they decide to party as tony calls it which we're just assuming involved drinking and maybe drugs and he noticed that brian disappears and might be under the influence of cocaine when he comes back and so tony's in the pool and brian is just talking about anything and everything and then finally he moves the subject into a more like sexual topic and brian picks up a pool hose and he talks about erotic asphyxiation and how he wants to try it. And Tony Harris agrees. And the reason why he agrees, and this is what he says, is that he wanted to know the truth. He just needed to know what happened to his friends. And so as he is being strangled by Brian Smart, he decides to pretend to pass out. So he pretends to die because he's at this point worried that Brian will go too far. So he fakes dying. And Brian literally freaks out, shakes him, starts panicking and screams, you know, you can die doing this. There have been accidents. And then Tony pretends to come to and says, is that what happened to Roger Goodlett? Was he one of your accidents? Were there others? And Brian didn't answer. Oh, my gosh. So how did Tony get out? And so this part's a little bit hazy because there were drugs involved. And, you know, Tony doesn't want to incriminate himself. But so Brian passed. So Tony was able to snoop around because he was trying to find any identifying factors. What's his real name? Who he is? But he didn't find anything. It was just very odd. The home didn't have any personal artifacts. And so when Brian came to, he was still kind of foggy. And Tony took this opportunity to ask him for a ride back to Indianapolis. And for some odd reason, Brian agreed to take Tony back home. But they did agree to meet again next week. But before their next meeting, Tony actually went to the PI, Vandegriff, and they arranged a stakeout to see if they can catch Brian. But he never showed up, which is very odd. It's almost as if he knew. So this is when Vandergriff realized, holy crap, we need to call the police. We need police help. And so with Tony's story, 
the police finally started to take this seriously. They actually started to get the FBI involved and they really started looking into these men who went missing and they found out that they all had very similar age, weight, and they were all clean cut men. All these guys had the same profile that yes, they had a serial killer on the loose. And so unfortunately what Tony's testimony that he didn't have too much information. All he knew was that the man called himself Brian Smart. He knew that that he lived somewhere in northern Indianapolis, but that's it. So the FBI had to start building a profile. They figured that their perp would have to be in his 40s and that he started killing in his 20s, maybe early 30s. And he was possibly married and struggling with his sexuality. Sound like anybody we know? Yeah, it's crazy. They had such little information, but they really nailed it on the head here. So what they had to do here, they didn't have much to go from. So Tony is just ride or die. And he keeps an eye out because the police investigation is not going anywhere. They cannot find this guy. Well, he continues to go to these bars and finally he strikes gold. Tony sees Brian again at a bar and he starts up a conversation. And after the talk, Tony runs outside and writes down Brian's license plate number. And boom, it's a match for Herb Baumeister of Fox Hollow Estates. Love Tony. Tony is ride or die. He's a real one. And this is his alias name. We don't know his real name, but yeah, we call him Tony. And so... With this new break in the case, the police decided to pay Herb a visit at Save-A-Lots. And they decided to just approach him and say, look, we are investigating these disappearances and you are connected to this to these cases. And he just denied. He got really mad. And he told his wife, look, these guys are saying that I'm stealing something and I didn't steal anything, which is not the case. The police flat out told him it was a homicide case. But he was trying to get his wife ready so that way when the police would contact her she would say no you have the wrong person it is not him my husband doesn't steal but when she found out it was a homicide case and not robbery and theft she still wasn't ready to cooperate but she started to think this might not be true the skeletons in the woods so six months passed after they approached herb and Finally, Julie decides to crack. And this is under the strain of police scrutiny. And at the same time, their business is not doing well. So they are falling in debt fast. Herb's mental illness is getting worse. And they end up filing for divorce. And Julie decided it was time to investigate. So maybe she just felt free enough. We don't know why exactly. But this was when she's like, okay, let's see what's really happening so in june of 1996 the police started to search the home and at first they thought you know it was just a really rocky area like they started searching the backyard and they just thought it was a bunch of pebbles but then they looked closer and realized that these were not pebbles but bits and pieces of charred skeletal remains and human teeth it was scattered everywhere in plain sight right where his children would play. It was in their backyard. So while they were away at the lake house, he was burning bodies. Exactly. Exactly. And 
this is right where they would play. To me, this is just so unsettling because the thing that these children were playing with human remains, it's just, you know, like as a kid, like you pick up rocks and you might throw rocks. Like they were probably throwing teeth. This is one of the most oddest disposal methods I've ever seen because they weren't even buried. They were just tossed. Like hidden in plain sight, but no, it's not hidden because we can see the teeth. And after they were able to identify these bones as human, the police continued the search. And unfortunately, they were only able to identify four men out of 11. So there were 11 bodies on Earth, and they were only able to identify four. Roger Goodlett, Stephen Hale, Richard Hamilton, and Manuel Resendez. But they couldn't find Herb. Herb was missing. He had took his son with him. He'd empty his joint bank account that he had with his wife and just disappeared. So because of this, Julie was able to ask the police for help by filing full custody for her children. And because Herb was nowhere to be found, she was granted that. And then the police were able to then use this to find Herb and her son. And they did. And they were unharmed. However, the police did not act upon the fact that they found 11 bodies in his home. So what they did was they just retrieved the son, returned them back to his mother, and let Herb go because there was never an official warrant for his arrest. I can't. I can't. That doesn't make any sense. Just let that sink in there. They let him go. And they couldn't get a warrant. The courts were unable to to grant a warrant because they felt like because Herb was such an outstanding citizen, everyone knew who he was in the area. They didn't want to tarnish this man's name. No, 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 no. That's enough evidence. It was on his property. Like, come on. And his license plate number. Like, come on. But so because of this, Herb was able to run and he ran all the way to Canada. And by a week later, he was parked in Ontario, Canada at a park called Pinery Park. And he shot himself in the head with his Magnum revolver. He left a three-page suicide note, but he only talked about his marriage, business, and children, but absolutely nothing about the murders. And despite the lack of support from the county because like no one would grant a warrant the police continue to dig into herb's path and they found that in the 80s herb spent a lot of time in ohio and there were bodies of nine strangled men found on i-70 which runs through ohio and connects it with indianapolis and they were strangled which is that asphyxiation thread yes and one witness was able to ID Herb as leaving a bar with one of the victims, Michael Riley, in Ohio in 1983. So we think that there's a minimum of 20 people that he has killed. Yes. And because of that, they think that he only started using his house as a dumping spot for the bodies because it was his property. So he felt like it wouldn't be searched. So, yes, they can be spread out all through I-70 through Ohio to Indiana, which is a long stretch. I-70 goes on for hours. Oh, my gosh. I've never heard of Herb. And that's fascinating because, like, I live here. I never heard of it. So 
Unfortunately, not everyone believes that it was Herb who did it. Ted Fleischiger, who was a journalist who writes for a lot of uh, gay magazines back in the day. He said they just decided to take some stuff out of old files, dust it off and say, we solved this. And he said it's just a neat election year ploy to get some sheriffs and some people who are incompetent reelected. So not everyone believed that Herb was the sole killer here, that there may have been two. We just don't know. There's just not enough evidence. And because he died, this never went to court. So today, Fox Hollow Farms is a popular spot for ghost hunters, and the land has been broken into two parcels. And I'm saying this because Half of it is owned by someone whom I love. He runs a local Urban Vines uh, winery. It's called Urban Vines, and it's always popping. It's always busy. And the other half is owned by a family. And so often the people who live on this property joke that they are living on a graveyard because there may still be more remains still have, that still have yet to be found. Because of the way he just scattered them and threw them like they were rocks. It was like, you know, a needle in a haystack. I can't believe people would want to live on that property. At first I was scared because I thought my favorite winery was built on it. But then I realized it was just his house. But I was just like, yikes. But that's the story of Herb Baumeister. Wow. You know, it is interesting because part of me feels grateful that he ended his own life because that's what he deserved if he killed 20 plus people. But then part of me, to circle back to the beginning, is wondering, like, do these families feel like they got justice for their loved ones? And, and where, you know, how do you, how do you find out who killed them? And it didn't help because, like, none of this was an official murder case because it never went to trial. So that's why I said all the information isn't there. Like most of this information comes out in court documents and we just don't have access to that. So it's just, yeah, it's pretty unfortunate. I'm also surprised that the dental, the teeth, you know, isn't a starting point of some sort, but that just identifies victims. It doesn't help with who put them there. So I understand why that's a conundrum. I'm also really proud of Tony because... I think it's a big, it's really hard to listen to your instincts about someone. And you said over and over again in this story that people who worked for Herb had an icky feeling about him. And that is something to pay attention to and respond to. So Tony, that's my big takeaway is Tony's actions. Well done, Tony. Snaps for Tony because I just, without him, we probably wouldn't even know anything. These would just be disappearances. So, yeah, and that's the story of Herb Baumeister. So, Christy, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate having you on the show as my first guest. I hope you'll have me back for season two. I want to come back. Thanks for having me, and I look forward to hearing more because I do love true crime and knitting. My name is Sophia Talley, and this was True Crime in Knit. If you'd like to know more about this week's subject, please check the show notes where I list all of my sources. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.